It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Um, missed you the last uh, few weeks, was doing something else entirely, sorry, and, um, but uh, a delight to be back with you. Just before I turn your attention to the Word of God, and I want to read you two verses from the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 10. So if you want to turn to that, but while you're turning to it, just to mention what we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights, and um, we've been preparing for this for a little while, believed it was really important that we had an opportunity to consider one of the greatest challenges that any man or woman has to deal with in the course of life. All sorts of things happen in life to us. Any of you who have lived a little while know that through relationships in one way and another, we get hurt, caused pain, face given challenges. And one of the dangers is if we don't deal rightly with that stuff, it brings us into a bondage that is thoroughly unhelpful. And so for the next eight Wednesday nights, that's not strictly true, but I'll explain that in a moment. We're going to be looking at what is called the freedom factor. How you find freedom through forgiveness. There might be some issues that arose in your life with family members, in work, in business, at some time or another, for some of them years ago. Yet you've never really got free from that and been able to process it properly. Church, obviously, because of the Word of God, talks a lot about forgiveness. But there's also some real challenges in the practical outworking of that. And so what's going to happen for these Wednesday nights? Bruce Wilkinson, the man who um, wrote a little book called The Prayer of Jabez a number of years ago, has done a teaching series on how to find freedom through forgiveness. It has changed so many people's lives completely. And so we'll begin by looking um, uh, at his teaching on DVD for about 35 minutes, and then we'll break into groups where we'll facilitate discussion around those issues so that we can work out some of the challenges that we find, some of the issues, some of the struggles, and hopefully out of our own experience, be able to help and support one another as we live in the freedom that comes from forgiveness. I really do believe this will be life transformational to some of you. It's an eight-week series. It's going to take us up nearly to Christmas because for two weeks, we're going to interrupt it. On the 8th and the 15th of November, we're going to have a visiting speaker here on those Wednesday nights. Pastor Malcolm Duncan is going to come and to share the Word of God on those particular Wednesday evenings, and that will just uh, break that up slightly so that it gives you time to reflect on some of the stuff while you're working through it as uh, we pursue that. But please let me encourage you as strongly as I can Come and be part of this on Wednesday evenings. We really do believe you will find it to be greatly beneficial. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods. 
and Lord of Lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. God is God of gods and Lord of lords. And for a period of time on Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at this issue of God is. For several reasons, we have focused our attention and we'll be focusing yours on those aspects of the Word of God that make known the character of God to us. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Jeremiah 9 verse 23 says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Jesus said it like this. John 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In the book of Daniel, we're told that the person who knows their God will be strong and do exploits. Knowing God is the single most important thing that any one of us can do. And so we wanted to look at those aspects of the Scripture that said, God is. And in Deuteronomy 10, we're told God is God of gods and Lord of lords. It's interesting that God wants you to know that about himself. It matters to him that you would know that he is God. And he worked in a very particular way in Israel's history in order to demonstrate that. In Exodus 12 and verse 12, says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. What happened in Egypt through each of the plagues wasn't simply a demonstration of supernatural power. It was a demonstration of power that showed the Egyptians that God was God over every one of their gods. So when Moses tells his father-in-law Jethro what has happened, 
Jethro says in Exodus 18 and verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For he told, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. When he heard what God had done, he realized God was God over all other gods. One of the things that concerns me sometimes is I meet people who name the name of Christ, who claim to be Christian, but they don't appear to be convinced that God is God of gods and Lord of lords. I listen to people who have a pessimistic outlook on what's going on in the world and are concerned about the rise of other voices that are seeking to shut out the voice of God in the earth. And I wanted to say to you this morning, God believes He is God of gods, and He believes that He is Lord of lords. He's convinced of His own position of supremacy. He thinks that He is over everything else, and He believes that He is totally and completely in control. And we need to come to a place in our lives where we get a conviction that that's actually the situation. God is God of gods. And he's the Lord of lords. So, in considering that Samuel reflects in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 23, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people. 2 Samuel 7.23, God went out to make a name for himself. He intended to draw attention to himself. He intended for the world to look at what was going on and think, that God is God of gods. That God's worth worshipping. Very quickly, and some of you are familiar with this, throughout the account of the plagues in Egypt, when the Nile River and all of the waters in buckets and everywhere else it was held is turned to blood, what's happening? God is demonstrating that He is God over happy, not happy with a Y, but happy with an I, the Egyptian God of the River Nile. They've got their God of renewal, of fertility, and of water. The God happy. Yet happy is totally unable to stop God from demonstrating He's God over the waters that he's the one who's in control. And so God demonstrates his power in that way. When the plague of frogs come on Egypt, God demonstrates that he is more powerful than Hecate. Hecate is a frog depicted as a frog-headed woman. Here is this God that Egyptians worship in the form of a frog. But Hecate's got no power to stop the frogs. And God demonstrates He's God 
Because Pharaoh has to choose the time when you want the frogs to start dying. Because Hecate hasn't got the power to do it. When the ground is struck and the dust of the earth becomes gnats or lice, depending on your version. God is demonstrating that He is supreme over Geb, the God of the earth. The Egyptians worshipped Kefri, a god depicted with the head of a fly. And Kefri is God of creation in the Egyptian pantheon. But the God of creation isn't able to do a thing with his fly head to stop a plague of flies going throughout the whole of Egypt. But God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel because there isn't a fly anywhere in the land of Goshen. And they're not plagued. What is God doing? He's making a proclamation. Your gods aren't worth worshipping. I'm the God of gods and I'm the Lord of lords. It mattered to God that people would recognize that. The Egyptians worshipped Hathor, the goddess of love and protection, depicted with the head of the cow and with horns. And suddenly there's a plague on their livestock and all of their cattle are smitten. And they begin to die. And the goddess of love and protection depicted with the head of a cow has no capacity to stop the hand of the God of gods and the Lord of lords. They have a goddess, Isis, who's the goddess of medicine. But when they're covered in boils and in agony... All of the worship to their goddess isn't able to change their circumstance because God's demonstrating He's the God of gods. They had a god called Nut. Great name for a god, I guess. Nut was actually the goddess of the sky. But when God says it's going to rain down hailstones like you've never seen before in your life. In fact, so much so, this is how it's expressed. Exodus 9 and verse 15 says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised up Pharaoh in order to demonstrate his power and to make a name for himself. And Pharaoh's opposition to God, hear this, Pharaoh's opposition to God, all it does is make a name for God in the earth. It gives God an opportunity to display his power. Every time nations rise against God, every time voices rise against God, every time other world religions try to push Christ out of the central place and adopt a position where they suggest they have power, it simply gives an opportunity for God to demonstrate the greatness of His power, proclaim the greatness of His name. It worries me when church expresses its fear at what's going on in the world, because here's what I read in the Scripture. It's what 
they prayed in the book of Acts when they were told, don't ever again speak in his name. They prayed Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth gather together and the rulers conspire against you and your anointed one. They say we will throw off their chains. We're not going to be ruled by God. And this is what it says. The one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. And he mocks them in derision. I've heard lots of preachers say God's got a sense of humor. I'm not sure what they're saying, but I know the Bible says when he sees people rise up against him, he's laughing. He is not the slightest bit concerned. God's not panicked about world religions today that are trying to usurp his position of power in the world. God's not concerned about any king or government who's denying his reality. We've had the opportunity in the last couple of years to support work in Albania. It used to be years ago, and some of you will remember, Albania was the most closed country in the whole of the continent of Europe. And when you would fly into the airport, there was a massive sign across the whole wall of the airport terminal saying, there is no God. Was God concerned? The one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs and he mocks them in derision. He says, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. The coronation has already taken place. Christ has risen in the power of an endless life. He has been crowned king of kings and lord of lords. And we need to get into our understanding the fact that God is the God of gods. And so God is demonstrating that in Egypt through Pharaoh when the plague of locusts come. Seth, the God of storms and disorder, is utterly humiliated. But the locusts come and God has a particular purpose. This is how he expresses it. He says, Exodus 10 and verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt that you may know I am the Lord. All the way through his dealings with Egypt, God understood he was humiliating their gods. He was demonstrating their utter impotence. He was demonstrating totally and completely the fullness of his power. In one sense, their greatest God was Ra, the God of the sun. And yet for three days it becomes so dark they cannot see one another. Where was Ra? 
he was nothing, their greatest God, compared with the God of gods. And still Pharaoh resists. And so finally, God does this thing. You see, the people in Egypt worshipped Pharaoh as a god. They believed him to be the first son of Ra. And so a plague comes on the firstborn. And all of the firstborn who haven't applied blood to the door of their lives are put to death. Because God is demonstrating he's the God of gods. Very quickly, let me say these things to you. God is God of gods and Lord of lords. And verse 18 says, He shows no partiality and He accepts no bribes. Because it wants you to understand that a God who is totally sovereign, who has no rival, no equal, I think we've sung it a few times, is not some dictatorial, vengeful God. He shows no partiality. He will not treat you with favoritism. He treats everyone in the same way. He doesn't accept bribes. The way in which gods were satiated, the way they would appease gods at different situations in those nations, what they would come, they would offer their gifts, they would bring their bribes, their sacrifices to God. Our God isn't moved by a sacrifice. He's not moved by bribes. You can't get round God with gifts. He has total, complete integrity. He shows no favoritism, but he acts entirely with integrity. And then it says this. He's the defender of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the alien, granting them food and clothing. The most vulnerable people in any society, God is totally committed to. The God of gods who has power to demonstrate how insignificant other gods are. Who can cause plagues to come that would destroy people completely. Defends the most vulnerable in society. The widow. The orphan. The alien doesn't translate well, does it, in our days of... Sci-fi, Northern Ireland, it will be the stranger. Immigrant, migrant, refugee. Please hear me. Whatever politicians say, 
whatever political thing is going on in the earth, God loves migrants. God loves strangers. He feeds them and he'll clothe them. And that's got to be reflected in his people. We need to know whatever political thing goes on, whatever bandwagon happens to be there, whatever impact people feel that might have on their economic circumstance, the responsibility of the church is to reach out their arms and to welcome those who have come from other nations. Those who might have reason to feel a little outcast or isolated need to find themselves included in the body of Christ. They need not to be made to be felt different or awkward or in any way ill at ease. They should find hospitality and a home with the people of God. God urges Israel to behave in that way and his reason for urging them to behave in that way is you yourselves were aliens and strangers in Egypt. Remember where you've come from. The most powerful one defends the most vulnerable. And that needs to be the way his church reflects him. One of the most important things about the people of God is how you treat the most vulnerable among you. How we treat the least. In as much as you did it to the least... Of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And that puts a huge responsibility on us. And there are significant practical outworkings in that. But let me say some things briefly to you as I draw to a close. Because God is God of God's. What I know is that governments are powerless to stop the gospel. I am not worried about the success of the gospel in the world because of opposition. The greatest challenge to the success of the gospel is whether or not the church will be obedient. I have a word that I want to share with you tonight. It is, I believe, one of the most important things that differentiates those who do from those who have all sorts of great intentions, pray powerfully, but don't. I've quoted already to you from Psalm chapter 2, the one who enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord mocks them in derision. It goes on to say, then he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your reward. The context is nations, governments, 
opposition forces conspiring against Christ, against the anointed one of God. And speaking to his son, the father says, ask of me. And if you ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Do you think Christ is asking his father for the nations? Do you think Christ has said to his father, I gave my life for the joy that was set before me. I endured the cross. I have gone and laid down my life so that people from every tribe and language and nation on the earth would come. Father, I want the nations because you told me to ask you. I want the ends of the earth as my... Is Father going to give his son what he asks? Absolutely. Do not be concerned about whether or not the cause of the gospel will prosper in the face of incredible opposition because he's the God of gods. Here's another implication of God of gods and Lord of lords. I'm going to say it, I guess, in a particularly blunt way. Everybody is going to get what's coming to them. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Why? Because he's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. You can't mock him. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. See, I'm confident this morning God's in charge. It might look to you like people are getting away with things. It might look to you that people are able to do wrong with impunity. Everybody's getting what's coming to them. Think of the number of times the psalmist cries out when he thinks it's not fair. God, why do the wicked prosper? God, why are they getting away with it? They live how they like, and yet they seem to be blessed. God cannot be mocked. You can pull the wool over my eyes. You can make a complete fool of me. You can pretend to be something you're not, and you can take me in. But God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Because he's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Two things and I'll close. Because he's the God of gods, he's going to do everything that he pleases. And please hear me carefully. He's going to do everything that he has said. Isaiah 46, reading from verse 5. To whom will you compare me? 
or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Remember this. Fix it in mind and take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. And I will do all that I please. I love those words. This is how God reveals himself. My purpose will stand. And I will do all that I please. Who's going to stop him? You see, God's had a look. He says, there's nobody who can compare with me. Who will you liken me to? There isn't anybody out there like me. I am God. And I know the end from the beginning. And I will do all that I please. It is well with my soul. Because my soul is in his hand. He's going to do all that he pleases. And it doesn't matter who opposes me. It doesn't matter who rises against me. It doesn't matter what the forces of hell try to do. What the devil himself would try to do. God will do what he pleases. But he doesn't finish there. He's on a roll in Isaiah 46. And so he says, from the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. God's always able to get somebody to do what he wants. Whether it's an animal or a person. He says, what I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will. I will do. What I have said, that I will bring about. Some of you know the word of God very well. Some of you have read promises in the word of God again and again, and you're wondering. Can I tell you, here's what God says. What I have said, that I will do. You can have complete confidence. He will do. What he has said, he will do. That's a God that's worth worshipping. That's a God that's worth following. That's a God that ought to cause us to be filled with joy and understanding. We can't go wrong here. If we're obedient, he's going to do all that he's planned. Everything he's said, he's going to do.
1 John 4, 4. I'm done. He that is in you is greater. Who is it that's in you? That would be the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's in me. The God of gods and the Lord of lords that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. The arch enemy of your soul doesn't compare to he who is in you. God is. What a man thinks about God is more than anything else, more important than anything else about him. I pray you would live with a recognition that the God of gods and the Lord of lords is in you. Amen.